Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guests are Kent McCarter and Ali Lemer, editors of Joyful Strains, expat writers on Making Australia Home. Kent and Ali, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us on your show. It's a pleasure. Now, before we start to chat, um, Ali, can I ask you to just read to us a little bit from Joyful Strains? Sure, uh, from our editor's note. Um, Australia is deep in the throes of expanding multiculturalism. While newspaper ink and pixels are spilled daily in an attempt to make sense of its complex tangle of issues, literary responses to Australian immigration are far rarer. Never before has there been published a collection of the experiences and insights of expatriate authors responding personally to this question of Australian cultural diversity, not simply as grist for the headlines or a panel on Q&A, but sharing the real effects of uprooting their lives to make Australia their home. Uh, Shall I continue? Yes. Okay. Uh, Joyful Strains reflects the ethnic diversity that has grown as swiftly in the arts as it has in the Australian national census. The writers in this this anthology share their stories of migration by turns harrowing and joyful, hilarious and profound, in bewitching detail. Their motivations for relocating to this lucky country and how their native cultures add to and contrast against the dynamics of Australian life are the essence of this book. As expatriates ourselves, we know what it means to tear away from the bonds of home and family to start over in a new country. Like this book's contributors, we too turned our lives upside down to move here from New York City and Chicago, cities that have been inspirational destinations for people the world over for nearly two centuries. Coming from the United States, much like Australia, a nation built by the striving of immigrants with a complex and difficult colonial history, we found ourselves thinking about the experience of expatriation in not only our own lives, but those of others who faced far different experiences. How much harder is it, for example, for those who don't speak English fluently? How do other expats adjust to Australian life? How do things from daily trivialities to profoundly emotional events challenge expatriates' perceptions of home? We wanted to give native-born Australians and outsiders insight into their country. A national literature needs to encompass all Australian stories to truly reflect the modern nation we have become, no matter how we got here. Wonderful. Thank you, Ali. Sure. Um, so one of the things you say in the, in the editor's notes, and, and I think you're probably right, certainly as far as I'm aware, is that we we haven't had much of this sort of thing. We haven't had that many literary responses to Australian immigration. Why do you think that is? Um, I'll, I'll go ahead, Ellie. Oh, uh, well, I, I, when I looked around at what was out there, there were always a lot of uh, novels from people uh, about sort of, you know, fictionalized versions of, their stories or stories that they knew of, but I couldn't see any, uh, you know, collections of writers talking about their own experiences. Uh, so I thought, you know, this is something that could be useful to have the experiences of, the, uh, of expatriates and immigrants told from a writer's point of view, uh, someone who obviously already is, uh, you know, adept with language and can articulate their stories. And I thought it would be fun to give, uh, you know, what a lot of whom are fiction writers the chance to turn their talents onto their own story. Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's obviously a lot of travel writing out there, and there's a lot of literature out there, and this is kind of the the, the one gap, the niche that um, 
again, looking around myself, there certainly wasn't anything like it in Australia, and I honestly couldn't find anything like it anywhere else in the world either, and that certainly might well be. Um, and the closest thing to this book in Australia, really, is, is either like the Melbourne Pen um, or, or the, the Macquarie Pen Anthology of Literature, which is really just a collection of literature from uh, Australians, so that kind of doesn't have the focus of expatriation or migration. Um, and then there's other things like Alice Pung's book, Growing Up Asian in Australia. So there's things that are, are similar, but um, nothing exactly like this. So I think we, um, we kind of are missing gap. As to, as to why that was the case, to be honest, I, I'm not sure. I guess I'm glad it was, because um, that, that's, that's a nice uh, opportunity for this book. Yes, one of the things I particularly like is the way, from a reader's point of view, I mean, obviously the writers wrote their stories in their own writerly isolation, but for the reader, each of the stories seems to inform the other stories that you're reading so that the overall effect is something that's greater than all the individual essays. You get a much broader sense of what migration means in, in many different contexts. Yeah, that, that, that's great to hear. I mean, it, it took us a little while to figure out what we wanted and to how to catch that in words from from the contributors. It's actually quite difficult, I think, in writing an editorial brief in getting what you want. And we had a couple of misfires, and, and, and we honed it a bit, and we finally perfected it on kind of a contributor number four or five it was. But, um, yeah, the intent was to have some common themes to throw them all together, but also to display the variety within that. So it's good that that does show through. Yeah, and, and not only were we looking to make sure that we found uh, people from all over the world, uh, because it would have been incredibly easy and, and incredibly lazy to just have a book of only British, American, Irish, and you know New Zealander uh, expatriates. Uh, we wanted to make sure, so we want to make sure we had a good spread from all over the world, but we also want to make sure we had people living all over Australia, not just people in Melbourne and Sydney, which again would have been you know, easy but kind of lazy and not really showing what's it like for someone who moves to, you know, uh, Alice Springs or Western Australia. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately, we, we did miss Tasmania, but um, we, we did try to get as, as much of a national spread as we could. And, of course, a big gender, a gender equality and a variety of writers. So there's, you know, there's poets, there's journalists, there's novelists, there's academics. There's, there's quite a mix in there, so... Putting that puzzle together um, is actually extremely complicated. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that it does come together in, in your perception. Yes. So how did the book come about? Um, did you kind of get together uh, and mastermind the book, or um, were you hired to work on an existing project? Uh, we started talking about it, I think, about four years ago. Um, yeah, it was. At, yeah, at a party. Uh, again, both of us being expats ourselves, uh, and I... I used to write for a, a, a sort of a group expat blog uh, called um, Lost in Transit, where everyone just sort of blogged about their experiences. And I loved the idea of that because I, I also loved reading everyone else's. And these were from all over the world, people from everywhere who moved everywhere. Uh, I was living in the Czech Republic at the time. And I said to Kent, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had a book like this for, you know, just for Australia? And Kent was like, yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. So then we decided to take it to um, a firm press, who ultimately was the, became our publisher. Yeah, that, that was definitely the, the first genesis, and it's gone through a few different um, major stages. And it started with that. We always wanted the stories to have a bit of gravity to it, but I think our original uh, plan, or the, the original thoughts, weren't nearly, I think, as important or heavy as the, the final book. I mean, we 
we didn't really start considering um, uh, like uh, refugees and things like that until um, Ted Melvin got involved. And it, it became increasingly clear that we had to, to really kind of broaden the scope of, of who we wanted to include. A huge shift was that we realized that we're going to have to include uh, people who came here very young um, as refugees or dragged by their parents, people who came here at age five and six. Our original idea was to collect stories from, you know, discerning adults who actively chose to come here, you know, like Mark Davin did on holiday, and then wound up staying, which is kind of what happened to both of us. So that was a huge frame shift that happened probably about a year and a half ago, and it really took off from there into the format that it currently is. And how did you pick? Did you invite the writers? Did you open a call? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. The, the the original shortlist that I researched for this book uh, was about a hundred people, um, and that's and that's and that's a lot. You do, and we we originally had the designs to get that down to twenty contributors. Thankfully, I got that back up to twenty seven um, during the process. But um, it was very hard. Again, kind of referencing the the mix of people and genders and areas that we needed. Uh, not to double up to have you know three people from the UK, which would be very easy to find in Australia. There's lots of English-born great writers here, um, and there's far fewer you know terrific terrific writers born in Swaziland or uh, you know fewer in Poland, fewer in Lebanon to, to choose from. So it, it was a bit of a, a intricate dance there, but um, we kind of narrowed it down to a short short list of about 40 people, and from there we began commissioning. Directly, so we didn't have an open call. Um, it was by inv invitation. Mm -hmm. And were there any? Was there anybody you invited who didn't who chose not to participate, or were there essays that didn't make it in? Um, there was a few people who we invited that gave us very gracious declines, and I, and I always knew that that would be the case. Um, we had an extremely short turnaround time to produce this, so we were, you know, we were working within seven months from beginning to end and for an anthology that's that's really kind of crazy short time um and so i knew that a lot of the you know bigger quote-unquote names probably wouldn't be able to, to do it and, and some could and some could not um so yeah we had a couple of declines there was a few where we got some interesting pieces that were just kind of completely to the left or the right of what we were actually looking for um, and that we wound up not being able to use. By and large, just about everybody that we invited um, did produce a piece. So, so I think we got pretty lucky there. Hmm. One of the things, and you talked about this earlier too, um, that I really like, and it must have been quite a task to do it, as you've described, you know, the difficulty of not only trying to get people from different backgrounds, people with different, I guess, different migrants, um, imperatives, migrant, um, the things that initiated their migration, but also the diversity of the writers. Um, you know, the fact that you do, in fact, have poets. You have, um, you know, a complete diversity of style. You've got humor. You've got serious, quite serious. You've got angry. You know, you've got um, joyful. <laughs> some of the some of the strains are less than joyful, but you know, there's there's a, a really lovely diversity to the um, overall structure of the book. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I, it was important for us to, you know, to to get a real and honest account. So we didn't want to produce a propaganda piece, you know, with immigration with the shiny, happy greeting card. But we also didn't want um, a thundering polemic 
uh, and so they didn't actively seek either or. And so this is an accurate reflection. There's some bitter pieces. There's some really positive ones, too. Um, so, yeah, we just really wanted an honest portrait. Um, Ali, what do you think? Oh, yeah, exactly what you're saying, just that we, we wanted the truth. We, we wanted, uh, you know, more than just, you know, funny anecdotes on the tram. Haha, ha, they didn't understand my accent. Uh, but, you know, you could have a funny anecdote on the tram if you could have some insight into what it meant for your experience here and, uh, you know, how it related to your t your culture, your life back home or something like that. You know, I mean, we, we wanted whatever people experienced, but with the insight and the analysis to go with it. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah. As migrants, as you work through the essays, did, did you find yourself, you know, at times with some of them shaking your head knowingly or um, did any particularly resonate strongly with you? Oh, yes. A lot. I mean, a lot of them did. Uh, obviously, I, not the things de dealing with, uh, you know, language difficulties so much, although I have had my accent uh, hard for Australians to understand sometimes. Not the same thing, of course, as someone learning English. Um but yeah, Amy Estes' piece about uh, losing her best friend uh, back home in the U.S. while she was here resonated for me, um, although it was actually the reverse. I lost someone here, and all of my family and friends were back home 10,000 miles away, and I, I couldn't connect with them. The network that I would normally have when I was bereaved was uh, was gone. That was one that resonated for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, I'm thinking, listening through the stories in my head right now, they're, they're kind of like... 27 odd little children in my head. I, I became quite close to to all of them, and I think there's my Misha probably in each that I could I could relate to. But I think I would make a, an interesting point is that I I I'd moved to uh, about 10 well no almost 20 years ago relocated to Italy. Didn't know the language. Had a really hard time. And when I was reading Shivu's piece about you know the, the family kind of trying to unpack the no standing sign and what that really meant. Uh, the nuances and uh, things of language, um, I could definitely associate with that. But um, yeah, there's just little details here and there uh, throughout the book that I, I definitely um, can associate with. Mm. And I know you wrote the editor's note jointly, but um, we attempt to, to, I mean, I'm sure both of you could write several essays as well on, on many migrations. Yeah, I mean, oh, I think yeah. we both. We've both, we've both written a number of pieces, I, I think, about that. And I guess maybe originally we thought we might include one from ourselves. Um, but I guess I was happier to kind of save the space for, for somebody else, really, and, and save our words for the forward or, or any, any publicity around it. So, um, yeah, I definitely wanted to maximize the diversity and, and not, um, not kind of slot myself in. But I, I definitely had stories that would have been right at home in that book. Mm, yeah, I, I some of the pieces that I wrote for that uh, Lost in Transit blog ended up in Mianjin uh, several years ago after I moved here, which you know, which is very gratifying. But like I said, the, we we just wanted to see this book get made, and we were interested in getting, you know, well, it, writers more established than myself. Kent has has had some um, some books po uh, published, but I've mostly been editing the last few years. So. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. And I imagine the editing job was pretty full on from a time point of view anyway. Oh, yeah, it was. I mean, especially yeah. because we, we both also had other jobs as well, our, our, our sort of our full-time jobs, so that we would do this in the evenings, just send stuff back and forth. And, you know, like Ken said, 27 pieces. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's 27 pieces, 27 different voices, 27 different approaches to the English language, you know, a good four or five of them distinctly as 
English as the second language, so uh, kind of translating from ESL to English was actually really, really time-consuming and draining, but rewarding also. Um, yeah, the editing process was was pretty intense. Mostly, I was doing this between midnight and, and three in the morning, which is about the only the only time I had left over to, to do these things. Having a, a nine to five day job and, and, a, and a, a young toddler son at the time, and, and having a family, and then trying to edit the journal. So yeah, it was it was a lot all at once. I'm not quite sure how I pulled off my end of the bargain on that, but we did it anyway. I understand completely. Um, yeah. Right. So did you find that, you know, as you were working through this and as you were developing it, and even now, I guess, how you perceive the notion of place has changed? Ellie, what do you reckon? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, uh, I, I, will, I will call New York home and I will call Melbourne home in the same sentence, and it doesn't it doesn't sound strange to me. I'll say, oh, you know, I'm off to visit my parents at home, and then when I get home, and they're both home to me. I, I this is the home where my life is, Melbourne, and my well, my stuff is obviously, but you know, the the people in my daily life and my network and the thing I do. But New York will always be home to me as well because it's just it's my hometown, and it's it's kind of where my heart is as well. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've led a reasonably parapathetic life. I've been here now for just over 10 years, and, and Melbourne is, is certainly home. But I think in reference to, to the scope of the book, what's really been underlined to me is, I think, the use and, and the term in reference to the word exotic, which I find problematic, and I probably find even more problematic now. And, and reading these variety of stories, um, and the provenance of where people came from. But those places have textures that have never been as real as the ones that I have known. And, and to kind of call them kind of exotic and foreign is a, a little bit insulting, I think. And, um, and, and I really got a, a, a tight grasp on, on that sensation, editing and working with all these pieces. Mm. Well, one of the things that resonated with me, of course, as a migrant, also multiple migrant, um, was Adib Khan. Um, when the line, now I have to live with the knowledge that I will never be entirely successful in my attempts to, I guess, find reconciliation between not so much one place and another, but, you know, these the separate lives, one in memory and one in the physical reality of the presence. The idea that, you, you know, there is no home because that's in the past anyway, that it's a kind of nostalgic place that sits somewhere deep inside you, but it's not a physical place, that there are two things. There's the here and now, and then there's the de the past. Yeah, it's kind of like living in, in, in a in a kind of a a personal limbo, really. I, I think that Hussein Mantel and um, and Oh yeah, and you definitely kind of touched on the same thing about having these dual selves living in the past and the future and in other places. And and, and I guess that's a, a pretty major common theme through the book. And I find it interesting in Adib's piece when he goes when he goes back. Uh, to visit his family and, and there's uh, mosques and things, you know, he's perceived as being quite awkward, so he doesn't really sit there anymore. And he obviously, it's really hard to completely assimilate to to Melbourne and see so it kind of in this weird no man's land. And, and that's touched on a number of times at least, and I can certainly relate to that. It's, it's an odd window. Mm, yeah, I find that as well. Cause I still I still keep up on Americans politics and, you know, sort of current events because I can still vote there and I feel like I should. Uh, and yet things will happen here in Melbourne and I have to look look up references to people that I've, I haven't heard of or events from 
20 years ago that everyone else is, you know, it's common knowledge to everyone else, but it's lost on me. Mm. Especially, I think, you know, some of these writers, their migration was hard. And I guess for the three of us, certainly for me, um, migration to Australia was easy. It was an easy migration, much easier than other migrations I've done, and probably the same. Certainly, Kent, you touched on that. You know, it, this was the easy one. Yeah, um, I mean, it was. Yeah. yeah. No, but that, that fracturing still occurs, and I think it's easy to forget it until you start to read these and go, yes, no, I understand that completely. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, mean, I can't imagine kind of doing, being being dragged off at age five to to the Ukraine or or to Mongolia or to Burkina Faso. I mean, that, that would be. I mean, that would be how jarring and different these, some of these transitions were. I mean, imagine being, imagine coming from Iran like Ali Aliza did, did and starting high school straight away in Australia. That would be insanely hard and um, yeah, quite yeah, an interesting piece. Or having to stay in a migrant hostel instead of, yeah. you know, we, we, you know, I, I came here and, and found a sublet. That's a lot different. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that all of these people are writers. So as I'm reading this, and they're not just migrants writing about their experience, they're writers writing about writing as well as writing about their experience. I felt this intrinsic link between the writers and their migration. Migration informed their writing as being writer-informed and sometimes even drove the migration. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, it, it, again, it took us a while to, to extract that or at least put it down on paper that that's kind of what we wanted these pieces to reflect. And so that was part of the brief. I mean, we were, we did approach writers for a reason. They're obviously in a very unique position to accurately and, and with a good craft tell this kind of story. Um, and so, yeah, I was really hoping that that would come through. And, and I think it does in, in most pieces. Catherine Ray's piece particularly touches, uh, she's originally uh, from France, where, of course, you know, language is very important to to French people and French writers, and she's dealing with, uh, she, she mentions that, you know, in, in French, she can, she can play with language, she can use it as she will, and then suddenly she's in Australia, and English for her just becomes a very prosaic tool, like, like a set of pliers that she can use to get the things she needs done, but she can't, she's not witty in English, she can't make jokes the same way that she can in, in French, and so she feels, you know, hopeful in a way. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Catherine Ray's piece. I mean, um, when we first approached her, and, and the first piece, the first draft we got back, it was, it was an absolutely perfect academic hardcore academic essay with footnotes and references to the philosophers. It, it, it was perfect, and she had played the role immaculately. But then when we asked her, well, we kind of want your story, one of the personal things about you, Catherine Ray, uh, the, the draft we got back from that was complete chaos. It was um, just kind of this mental expunging of thought and emotion, and um, which is what we wanted. But uh, it took a lot, of, a lot of work, actually, to put that into shape that it is now, but I thought it was kind of interesting that using a foreign language as a tool and using it as well as she did to produce great academia, and she has been employed in academics here for a number of years, but then when you kind of step outside of that, exposing yourself, and it's kind of a bit more mayhem, I thought that was quite an interesting, interesting mm. juxtaposition. Yes, I imagine almost the other side of the coin from that would be, say, Juan Garrido Salgado's mutinous. Yeah, expressing uh, Juan Garrido Salgado's um, talk about being mute when he first came to Australia, him and his family, 
and being unable to express himself at all, feeling completely cut off from his tongue. And I, I guess, you know, that in relation to being a poet and how those two things work together. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was a, a really a really harrowing piece to, to work on because, um, yeah, I think as you mentioned, that's a very fascinating challenge. But I, I can't actually, I can't actually really fathom that he didn't actually choose to come to Adelaide, not even remotely. It was the United Nations that just kind of slotted him in there as a, as a refugee to escape Chile, and so he had to you know, a try to find a life, a language, anything that he could that he could find. Um, and I have to honestly admit that I can't even really fathom how that would go for me. Yeah, he, um, he has a, a section where he talks about having to carry his dictionary everywhere to engage in, yeah. in any kind of dialogue whatsoever. And I mean, I had a very small experience of that when I lived in the Czech Republic, and I had to take my dictionary to the supermarket. And the simplest supermarket trip would take me an hour because I had to look through all the ingredients uh, because dietary restrictions that I had to make sure I could eat this. But, you know, that was. Mainly just the supermarket, and I also, as Ken pointed out, I you know I chose to go to the Czech Republic, whereas one Gerda Gerda was just kind of dumped here, well not dumped, you know brought here, and then had to deal with a dictionary every time he wanted to speak to anyone. Yes, and his yeah. children since mutinous too. I mean, there wasn't just his own, but that you know he had a family who was also struggling to find a new voice. But he did in the end. I mean, this is his voice. His voice is in the book. His voice is in his poems, which he writes. In English, so you know there there is a voice. It's a different voice, perhaps. So yeah, I think I mean, he's one. He's he's probably I'm maybe not more than any other, but he's really made a point to to hang on to his original heritage and, and his English. Um, it's only at, at, at a moderate level, and he was well aware of that, and was a little bit hesitant about writing a piece in English. But but we made it work, and he it was a challenge for him then. Yes. And then you've got Ouyang Yu, of course, who is, um, he's known, I mean, I've known, I've, I'm familiar with his work, and he's been writing about um, being in two worlds for many years. Yeah, I mean, he was, in putting together our list of possible um, contributors, he was one that kind of springs to mind straight away. Um, he was a big name, and yeah, that was definitely a no-brainer to, to choose him. And, um, but yeah, we had the first, yeah, yeah, Ali Ouyang that was, was attached to the project a long time back, so those two names were came to the fore quite quickly. Yeah. Matt, you've had a number of events around the book, um, quite a few, including your Australia Day launch. Is, is there anything that surprised you in terms of the book's reception, in terms of the way people are responding to it? Ellen, uh, I'd, I'd say we're I'd say we're both very very pleasantly surprised at, at uh, how how much people have responded to it positively and how much they've enjoyed it. Not that we not that we thought that was a doubt. We just you know you, you don't really know. You just sort of you know put something together and and hope that people it resonates with people and and it, it seems to have really done so. I've a lot of my friends who are you know native Australian born people have said you know I've really loved reading it because these are stories that I just you know, I, I you take for granted the place where you're born and grow up, but I had no idea what other people were going through. Yeah, I think um, kind of a, a masterstroke of that was to delay the launch of this book almost half a year. The book was done really in, in July and printed printed in the printer in August. And the original plan was to perhaps launch around then, but the press had a very very good idea of launching the book on Australia Day, 2013. Um, there's no way around it really helps get some publicity out there. As it's it's a ready made story, it's an interesting story and um 
And I, I think that definitely has helped with the publicity. And of course, the proceeds go to help Melbourne Penn, which also was a, a good selling point because we say, look, this is for a good cause. This is helping other writers uh, elsewhere uh, who, who need help. Yeah, there's a siren voice talking to no, that's that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And uh, I guess so, Kent, um, you and Ali were probably saying, why did we rush? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe we could have extended that deadline by a month or two. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, they, the firm took, you know, took, took a good risk and a punt on two relatively unknowns, and, and it was wonderful to work with a, you know, a small press. It's, to be honest, it's, it's on the bigger side of the small press, but... Um, we had good control and quite a bit of control on, on what we do and what and tones and things. So that was that was really nice to have. I think um, some of the contributors had pulled me aside and said off you know off the record, so I won't name who. But you know, if you would have approached a bigger press, this probably would have been you know killed in the water immediately, as if no one wanted to read it. Um, which, which I find interesting. I, I wonder what would have happened. I, I dare say my cynical side probably probably agrees with that. So I think there was some very fortuitous um, convergence in timing and events with the press, with the contributors, with, with everything for this book. So a bit of luck uh, goes a long way, too. That's it. It's a lucky country. So we're almost out of time. Um, but just quickly, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about your own work and what's in the pipeline. Maybe you could just take it in turns. Uh, okay, go ahead. Um, I'll go for it, Ellen. <laughs> uh, well, right now I, I actually am uh, freelance editing uh, for my old company, Lonely Planet, uh, which, is, of course, is a travel guidebook. Uh, is related to my lifelong love of traveling and seeing other cultures. Uh, and I'm hoping to possibly write some guidebooks for them later this year. And, uh, yeah, that's all I've got right now on my plate, personally. Um, for me, I've got... I've got a couple of kind of uh, oddish sort of nonfiction pieces coming out here and there in the Mr. Brow and various things around the country. Um, uh, the third book of poetry will be out in 2014. Um, and but most of the time that I spend doing now is um, is editing Cordite Poetry Review, uh, which takes up a fair bit of time. So I'm working with a lot of words pretty much every day. Uh, the portion of which are mine is actually quite small at the moment, but I'm hoping to get back to my own writing a little bit more. But um, it, it keeps it keeps the brain sharp editing other people. I definitely have to admit. Yep, the the editor's dilemma. Yes, I know. I know, but it, it's, yeah, it, it, it's for the best. I think actually, it's, it's a good experience. But, um, yeah, I'm kicking around the idea of. Uh, another anthology or a novel or or something. Uh, I'm I'm not sure, but I'm kind of brewing brewing ideas there. We'll see what happens with them. Hmm. Well, at the maybe end of this we'll year, maybe early next year. And maybe we'll 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 talk about Joyful Strange Volume Two if it continues to go well. Absolutely, you've got to get yeah. Tasmania in there. Oh, I know. I mean, and the thing is, is that there's there's so many more absolutely terrific writers that could have vetted this book. Um, <coughs> who deserve a voice in the book, really. And, you know, the, the pragmatics of publishing a book is just you have a finite amount of space, certainly a finite budget. You can't really accommodate everybody. But the list is nowhere near exhausted um, by any stretch. And you've got a precedent now, so it might be a little easier to yeah. get people on board. <laughs> Wonderful. That, yeah. 
that's all we have time for today. Kent and Ali, thanks so much for dropping by to chat. Um, and listeners, don't forget to join us next month on the Compulsive Reader Talks when Clive Hamilton drops by to talk about his new book, Earth Masters. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.